0: As I was told once in Brazil by a person who was in advanced stages of Huntington's, um, which also influenced my thinking a lot, he, he told me, I know it's too late for me, but please keep up your work and help my daughter. And I keep that in mind every day.
1: Huntington's is a rare, inheritable condition with no known cure. One of its most distinct features is that patients don't typically begin experiencing symptoms, which affect their motor, behavioral, and cognitive functions until middle age. This greatly affects their ability to work as well as their quality of life. Imagine you're in your early 60s and have progressed to the later stages of this debilitating disease. Only you also live in an economically depressed region where healthcare access is limited, disability payments are not available, and your caregiver, who is your daughter, is beginning to experience symptoms herself. I'm Chris Garcia, and in this episode of Vital Science, Gina Mullane speaks with Ignacio munoz San Juan, a scientist who has dedicated his life to Huntington's patients, both through his drug discovery work and his humanitarian efforts in Latin America. We'll discuss the struggles faced by Huntington's patients in vulnerable communities, the unique challenges of developing novel therapeutics for Huntington's, and the important legacy today's science may have in curing this transgenerational disease.
2: Ignacio, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. I'm told you like to be called Nacho. Is that right?
0: That's correct.
2: Okay, I like it. That's a that's a great name. Um, so, tell me about CHDI. What what is the uh, foundation that you work with?
0: So, CHDI Foundation. It's a nonprofit organization that was funded many years ago, probably two decades ago, um, to try to accelerate or develop treatments for Huntington's disease exclusively.
1: CHDI plays a critical role for Huntington's research. Rather than focusing solely on academic research, as many foundations do, CHDI's mission is to bridge the gap between academic and industrial research. Their goal is to develop therapeutics to the point that pharmaceutical companies will be willing to take them on for full clinical development. As a nonprofit, CHDI's bottom line is the time to market for life saving therapeutics. To this end, they collaborate with researchers rather than competing with them. The organization's scientific team offers their partners domain knowledge, reagents, protocols, animal models, and funding so they can work together toward their common mission to provide clinical relief to Huntington's patients as quickly as possible. Let's hear from Nacho on the drug discovery work he's been leading as CHDI's Vice President of Biology.
0: When I started, I was the only biologist, uh, Vice President in charge of all of the translational programs. So regardless of topic, um, I worked very closely with the Vice President of Chemistry, Celia Dominguez, to both build a drug discovery infrastructure, um, as well as being in charge of all of the biology support for all of the drug discovery programs. More recently, in the last six or seven years, um, as the field has expanded, um, I assumed a more restrictive role and driving the Huntington lowering therapeutic programs, as well as any neuroscience, symptomatic treatment approaches at CHDI.
2: It sounds like a tremendous amount of work has been put into developing your drug discovery program. You mentioned CHDI's program is focused on targeting the Huntington gene. Can you tell us more about the progress you've made and the challenges you've faced in developing novel gene therapies?
0: I mean, I think, you know, the history of drug discovery is very complicated, as, as people know. But if they don't, they should know that neuroscience drug discovery is a very low success rate exercise. So success is defined in many different ways. I think the most successful thing that CHDI has done is to to really generate a framework by which anyone can develop drugs for Huntington's. I think in terms of individual drug discovery programs, there are several that that come to mind. Um, The first one is the... Gene therapy or molecular therapies that we've developed, including in collaborations with Sangamo Therapeutics uh, for a program that selectively targets the mutant Huntington allele with a gene therapy approach that is in late stage preclinical development that so far is the only allele selective therapy that would work on every individual, assuming that when it goes to the clinic, or if it goes to the clinic, that it would work. Second thing I'm very proud of is the fact that we developed from from zero a uh, a set of novel uh, imaging small molecule binders of huntingtin that can be used for the PET, and this is very important work because it enables an understanding of where the gene therapy agents are acting in the brain. So all of these programs, I think, are you know I'm very proud of because they've delivered critical tools or drugs that we think can have a profound effect in how we do trials and in the disease. There's been many other programs that. I'm very proud of in terms of the drug discovery work that we did, for example, you know, histone deacetylase inhibitors or kinurine monooxygenase monoxygenase inhibitors. I think the problem there was not the work that we did, but rather that the biology did not uh, pan out in the way um, that we thought when we started the work based on academic publications, meaning once we develop a drug that is suitable as a therapeutic, the the... Um, interventional studies in preclinical species did not support uh, additional investment in terms of clinical development. So there's a lot of programs that I could have mentioned here that unfortunately were <laughs> were abandoned or deprioritized simply because the, the data in the preclinical species did not support uh, going into the clinic with those molecules.
1: Another hurdle in developing Huntington's treatment is simply expertise. In order to effectively manage clinical trials, researchers must have multiple clinical sites, know how to standardize how clinical trials are conducted across sites, and be equipped to interact with regulatory authorities. And in order to get to this point, they must first have a full understanding of the biology of the disease, animal models that enable drug discovery, and programs that hold promise for clinical development. A tall order when it comes to a condition as rare and complex as Huntington's.
2: It sounds like your preclinical work has been fulfilling, but not without its challenges. So what type of programs have you partnered with Charles River on?
0: Lots. So in fact, the, <laughs> first, the first meeting that I had at CHDI was with Charles River in Leiden. This is almost 14 years ago, 13 years ago would be, I think it was in January of 2008. And uh, we had a meeting to discuss um, a genomic screen that was being done out of the Leiden Group before it became part of the Charles River uh, sort of infrastructure. So as as people probably know, Charles River is a, I would say, uh, a company that has expanded a lot over the years, both in terms of the number of companies that it acquired, as well as in the breadth of services that it provides. For example, the histone deacetylase inhibitor program, a class two 4 inhibitors were, were done in Charles River. Um, a lot of the work that we've been doing on a novel oral drug that lowers Huntington systemically throughout the body, um, the novel splicing mechanism is being run out of Charles River. There's just um, a lot of different programs.
1: We love to hear directly from longtime partners like Nacho who have benefited from Charles River's strategic expansion over the years. We are proud to have collaborated with CHDI through multiple stages of their preclinical work, from early target identification and drug discovery in our labs to later stage in vivo studies at our site in Finland.
0: From the very beginning it was uh, one of the two main CROs that we've Collaborated with, and we've run many different programs. So I've been working with them for for thir- thirteen years. Uh, anything from genomic screens and target identification projects to you know drug discovery programs that uh, will very well run.
2: So let's let's talk a little bit about um, the outcomes of the work that is being done on Huntington's and and how that translates into the patients and um, that's the reason we wake up in the morning right and, and why we do what we're doing. And so I was wondering if you could take us into kind of what this disease, Huntington's disease, what it means to patients uh, from a financial um, impact, from a lifestyle, just what, what is it like and, and um, you know what are the drivers to, to help improve that?
0: Well, I think Huntington's disease is an extremely complicated disease. And I think that two major components that make it so. The first one is that it's a, obviously a mental disease that affects people in the most productive years of their lives. So in in contrast with most forms of neurodegenerative disorders of the brain like alzheimer's or parkinson's you know huntington's affects people in their third or fourth decade of life Um, by that time um, you know people have careers and they have families probably have a few kids depending on where they live and They become unable to work within a few years of being diagnosed with the clinical uh, stages of Huntington's. And um, the disease progresses very slowly, which uh, requires essentially continuous care over at least a decade of their lives. Um, That puts an extraordinary burden on the families, both on the caregiver, but also economically because the, the person who develops the symptoms can't work in their prime years. Uh, In many cases, they don't, you know, have... disability benefits in, in many countries of the world. And then the the burden for the caregiver means that another person in the family is going to have to be taking care of the affected uh, individual uh, for a decade or more. So you're eventually losing two salaries uh, in the family. The, the second component that exacerbates all of this is the genetic aspect of it. And, and Huntington's is very unusual in that sense that it's a genetically dominant disease. 100% of people have Mutations in a single gene. And on average, 50% of the kids born to an affected parent or a, or a person that carries the mutation will develop the disease. So you can imagine if you have a family, um, an extensive family, uh, your siblings. of them will be affected, your kids and their kids, 50% of them will be affected. So over several generations of uh, living with Huntington's disease, families get progressively condemned to poverty. And part, part of the reason for that is that people that are um, traditionally in the best position to help an affected person, mean your parents, your siblings, or your children, might also be affected by Huntington's disease in their nuclear families. So a lot of the traditional support is lost, and certainly uh, financially the family at large is very hard hit by the disease, and this just perpetuates over time. So it's a combination of those two factors that... that makes this a real terrible disease that has impacts way beyond the symptoms of an individual.
2: And I know that uh, you have uh, spent a considerable amount of time and effort to um, work on um, helping people to fight this disease, not only in the lab, but in your personal life. And um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing to um, help families and and provide a, a better life uh, where possible?
0: Yeah. So let me take you back maybe 15 years or 14, 14 years. Um, I think soon after I started a CHDI, I, I gave a talk in, in Taiwan. Um, and, um, you know, the, the organizers of the conference asked me what I wanted to do if I wanted to do sightseeing. And I said, no, I, I'd rather go to the hospital to to meet some of the HD families in, in Taiwan. And and I met a couple of families, but one thing really struck me, and that was I met with a, a teenage kid. You know, we had a translator, and his father was in a terminal stage in the hospital, and his younger sibling was three and was already suffering from Huntington's disease. And he was probably in his... 16 17 years of age and with that translator I was asking him how much he knew about the disease and if he knew anybody else that um that had Huntington's and he said no he didn't know much and he didn't know anybody Uh, and I said do you have anybody to talk to and he said no so at that moment it kind of I kind of made me realize that um there is such a shame and stigma associated with a mental genetic disease. And this kid was clearly afraid of developing Huntington's himself, but had nobody to talk to. So I decided at that point to start writing a blog about the science of Huntington's as a way that maybe educating people. That turned into really wanting to learn more about the daily experiences of people living in Huntington's families. And soon after that, I went to South America to try to establish a network of um, clinicians and scientists similar to what we do in Europe and the U.S. And I also gave another seminar there. And at the end of the seminar, um, a, um, a set of mostly women who run uh, family associations in different countries uh, approached me, and they were telling me how little support they were they were receiving. So I decided to spend a couple of years during my holiday time traveling through South America. I went to Brazil, I went to Venezuela, and I went to Colombia. And I went to these places because this is um, countries where there are regions or of, of towns with the highest prevalence of Huntington's in the world. And in fact, in Venezuela, uh, there are several towns With an incidence of the disease that is probably a thousand times higher than in the general population, and this is part of the reason why these populations were studied for about twenty years, and and that led to the identification of the gene that causes Huntington's disease. And um, during the course of visiting these places, I realized that um, we had a, a real humanitarian crisis unfolding, or Established in these communities, I found people living in extraordinarily vulnerable conditions. Um, You know, people dying on the streets, people starving to death, uh, people with no access to any medical care. uh, Thousands of children at risk that were living on the streets because parents had died from Huntington's disease and they had no no support. So, you know, I decided at that point that I um, I needed to do something today. Um, to try to help them out, and that something was um, something from the perspective of a social uh, humanitarian aspect, and that's how Factor H was born, and Factor H eventually developed into uh, another non-profit um, humanitarian organization that I founded and, and I currently lead um, as, a second, as a second job from my main scientific job.
1: Factor H began with the spark of Nacho's idea nearly a decade ago, but since then its mission has garnered mounting support from the Huntington's community. Founded in 2012 by Nacho and his colleague, Dr. Claudia Parandonis, Factor H was established as a formal nonprofit organization in 2018. It has brought together people from a range of professions, countries, and worldviews in its mission to improve the future of communities in Latin America, most affected by Huntington's. What began as a passion project is today a successful platform for programs in health and disease management, youth engagement, community development, and data collection and advocacy, all making a tangible difference for the most vulnerable of Huntington's patients.
2: I love the, uh, the vision for Factor H, a world in which families and communities impacted by Huntington's disease live in dignity, equality, and prosperity, exercising their basic rights, including their right to health and education. So it's really powerful um, and I, the story you just told really speaks to that um, can you tell us a little bit more about progress on that vision and what's what's on the horizon
0: well you know um, I always you know when I, when I started doing this I even have conversations with some people who were very skeptical that whatever I would do would make any difference and my my, my philosophy has always been I think both in science and in life is that, you know, one step, one step forward, uh, one day at a time and just take it slow, but steady. And Helping one person is better than helping no people and helping two is better than helping one. So, you know, I'm aware that with the limited resources that we have, we're not going to be able to solve every problem and help every person with Huntington's disease, but we can, at a minimum, change the conversation and significantly impact uh a few people in those communities. So I think we've made very significant progress. Uh, the first one I would say is by raising awareness, and I think the fact that we're having this conversation is already a, a, a sign that we've been successful in that sense. Um, second thing is, you know, our philosophy for working in in those communities has been to to work through them. So Factor H is really a, a catalyst, an advisor, a resource a set of tools for the local communities to improve their quality of life. So we work with local universities to provide uh, medical support, to provide psychological support, to provide educational support. And that's true in Colombia and Venezuela. So all of the work that we do is managed by um, people in those countries, mostly alliances through universities and other non-profits that have the expertise, that know the system, know the political system, know what to do and what not to do, and effectively liaise with the local communities. Um, you have to understand, particularly in Venezuela, that, but but also in Colombia and Peru, um, a lot of the a lot of these communities were studied over many years by people who came in. Uh, took a lot of samples, studied them, and they uniformly feel that they didn't get the change that they were hoping for.
1: As a scientist, Nacho has felt the highs and lows that come with the business of drug development. One day you can make a breakthrough in the lab, and much later, sometimes after months of testing, you face the realization that your therapy will never make it to market. The effects of this are felt even more deeply by patients who are involved in Huntington's research and clinical trials. As drug developers, it is our obligation to balance hope and expectations with patients and to help them understand that everything they do is contributing to a treatment being found, if not today, then someday. Without a fundamental trust between researchers and patients, therapeutics stand little chance of being brought to market. Nacho shared with us how he aims to build that trust in the communities he visits.
0: So when I, when I first started going there, especially as a scientist, um, people were very um, skeptic that my intentions were just to help them. So part of the things that I did initially was going back regularly. Every six months or, or sooner, I would go back, I would give a talk, I would meet with them informally until I earned their trust. And I tried to engage local agents, particularly youth, to essentially be the... the um, the main tool to engage the community effectively. We also fund the people that are working in the local family associations in each one of the countries. And uh, you know, it's almost irrelevant whether Factor H is recognized or not as an agent of change there. Um, our mission is to bring assistance to them um, and educate them about the disease, how to treat people. And, and also we put a lot of effort on the next generation of, of kids and youth at risk for Huntington so they can grow up with better psychological and practical tools to have a more productive life. Um, so we work at different levels. And you know, over the years, we've changed our approach to be a, a rights-based organization, the right to health, the right to education, the right to food, the right to adequate housing, and the right to live a life full of opportunities, and that's kind of like the mission that we're what is striving for, and we've made significant strides in in that way, but there's still a lot to do.
2: It's such a uh, such a labor of love for you. I can hear the passion coming through that you have for this cause and the people, and uh, it's uh, incredible the amount of impact that you're making. As somebody who's You know, actually day to day working in the science and then translating it into the human humanitarian side of it. Do you do some do you ever feel like I, you know, these are the parallels are set up um, perfectly for you? Or do you have a hard time balancing, you know, where you spend your time and energy?
0: I don't have a hard time balancing my time. I mean, you know, we all do in some ways, but, you know, I, you know, we've grown a lot and uh, we, you know, we have staff on the ground and, and staff here in the U.S. now. So they've taken a lot of the burden that I used to do on my own.
1: And what has Nacho done with the time that's been freed up? He's put it right back into the Huntington's community. He begins his days with CHDI early and dedicates evenings and weekends to his work with Factor H. This could be too much for some, but as Nacho explains, the two sides of his professional life create a synergy that keeps him going on his toughest days.
0: So interacting directly with people affected with Huntington's, particularly living in in very difficult situations and seeing a lot of people die, whether it is from the disease or suicide, which has happened many times during these last 10 years. Uh, it, 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 there's nothing more motivating to your scientific work than seeing that these people need you and need the output of the work that we're collectively doing. So, that's, I find that um, stimulating in moments of despair, as mm-hmm. we all experience what we're doing science work. Science takes a long time. You have to put that in perspective. And I think the work that I do at Factor H tapers that um, tendency to despair in terms of how slow things are and, and how frustrating science can be. On the other hand, you know, my interactions with people and the ability to fundraise and the ability to, to have some credibility about the humanitarian work also is influenced by the fact that I'm a scientist leading programs in Huntington's and, you know, people, you know, particularly patient communities care about what's going on in research and I'm a conduit to try to um, communicate to them where we are, where we're headed, and, um, and try to, you know, engage local scientists and clinicians in each one of these countries uh, to work more actively to help their own communities. And, you know, I'm, I'm under no illusions that if I didn't work in the field of Huntington's disease, I wouldn't have those connections. So I think, I think they play, they play, they help each other.
2: Yeah, I love that framework of the synergy. And I, I, imagine as a scientist um, being that close to the patients and, and, you know, seeing the needs that they have really underscores um, the the work that you do and, and motivates you every day. What, what do you see for um, the future for research and, and drug development for Huntington's disease? What is your hope?
0: Well, my hope is that we find treatments that at least work on some symptoms, if not delay the progression of the disease. I mean, I, you know, we, we've had a we had a tough year. You know, the most advanced programs were were stopped, both the Roche and the Wave programs. Uh, we still have some hunting the lowering therapies in the clinic. Unicure's um, gene therapy approach is surviving and doing well so far, and we have a set of oral drugs that are coming coming up, um, which are novel, novel. Um, novel drugs developed by Novarty, PTC Therapeutics, and Skyhawk. And I'm hoping that at least uh, one, if not more, of those will eventually reach the, the approval stage and those drugs will will have meaningful clinical impact. Um, I'm also hopeful that the more work we do through Factor H, the more of a international awareness um, is taking shape that uh, treating Huntington's is not just about medication, and it really requires um, different sectors of um, professionals working together, social workers, psychologists, uh, education specialists for children that are, for example, living in, in HD families and um, you know people who specialize, like occupational therapists, in giving families with HD the tools to be financially solvent, uh, and clinicians coming together. And I think this is something that we're trying to do through Factor H. So we organize conferences where we bring together all of these people and spend spend a week together, living and and uh, and doing activities together. And I think the more that we can bring these different sectors of the of the problem together, I think the more that we can potentially help uh, those individuals affected with HD. So I'm hopeful for the future. I'm also aware that this is probably a transgenerational problem. I, I suspect that a lot of people that I know today with Huntington's disease will die with Huntington's disease. I don't think the advances that we're making may reach them. Um, and I think we all need to realize that we want to make a difference. The difference may not come in our lifetime, but it will come in the future. And the work that we're doing today is um, critically important for that, for that day. It's kind of like climate change, right? Mm-hmm. It may not yeah. affect us. It will affect our future generations, but the time to act is now. And uh, I see our work in Huntington's very much in the same light. In 2017, we had an audience at the Vatican with Pope Francis. There is a documentary called Dancing at the Vatican available for free on YouTube. Um, I was the casting director and I chose the families that represented both Colombia, Venezuela and Argentina to meet the Pope. And after that event, um, a group of young at-risk people in... One of the two most affected towns in Venezuela decided to form their own youth organization to take action for their own communities. So that's a tangible impact that we already had through the interaction with with uh, with youth in those communities. The second thing is, you know, we have a sponsorship program for children uh, between the ages of three and 15, and this is the sixth year. Uh, that we've been doing it in Colombia. We have about 150 children that we've been sponsoring between Colombia and Venezuela. We're expanding that program, which is now called New Horizons, to cover at least 300 kids. The consequence of bringing kids together from different families and, in the future, hopefully different countries, all at risk, all living in very similar uh, precarious situations in terms of you know poverty and in terms of living with a disease has created already a community of kids who've grown up together, understanding they come from a Huntington's family, understanding how to interpret their parents' situation, disease, and with a circle that is more supportive of, of themselves. I remember when I mentioned the kid in Taiwan, I didn't want to have a child who grew up in fear not having anybody to talk to. And that's the origins of this program. And I think we've made very significant strides in having kids grow up with more information, more resources, and more hopeful about their lives. And I hope to continue to expand this program to reach every kid at risk for Huntington's in the countries that we work in.
2: Well, thank you so much, Nacho, for sharing that. That was a really um, inspirational story, and I, I'm inspired by your words and uh, your work, you. and it really kind of, I think, pushes us to all step up a little bit more. So thank you so much for sharing today.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to say, anybody who's listening, if you're from Charles River, thank you very much for all the work that you do. It's very important to to us and to the patient community. I think if you just have an interest in Huntington's or you have an interest in asking yourself how you can help um you know the communities that would represent through Factor H are uh, people that need people like you and thank you so much and thanks again for the time to, uh, to showcase uh, this problem
1: Ignacio Munoz San Juan is Vice President of Biology at the CHDI Foundation and President and Founder of Factor H Please check out our show notes for more information or go to factorh.org That's factor-h.org if you have questions about anything you heard today, please send them our way at vitalscience@crl.com. at crl.com. Join us next month as we continue our exploration of emerging curative gene therapies that transform the lives of patients. Until next time, thanks for listening.